Rabbi Yitzchak Blau were the first nine makot deadly? Last year, when I gave shir in this forum, so I didn't exactly know the policies. And afterwards, Rabbi Menachem Liebtek explained to me that when there's a large crowd, you're actually not supposed to be taking questions throughout the event uh, because uh, a lot of people want to talk and it's hard to keep going. At the same time, I really dislike uh, lecturing. I like to hear what the crowd has to say. So I, I checked the rules very carefully this year, and it says mumlats not to take questions. So uh, I, I guess in the English context, I probably should translate that. It's only a suggestion. But I, I think what we're trying to do, maybe what we'll do here is that we'll have stations along the way. Maybe we won't have a comment for the first half an hour, and then we'll open the floor. We'll do it that way, and I think we'll be able to uh, make everybody happy. When I first asked myself this question, whether the first nine Mako were they just a nuisance or were they life-threatening? I didn't realize the implications of the question, but I think now that it touches on many, many issues having to do with the makot. Uh, one question will be the individual understanding of specific makot. Some makot, we're not sure exactly what they are or what damage they cause, and obviously this question is very central to that. We'll look in, at the individual makot of Dam and Sfardeya and Choshech, so it touches on the meaning of individual makot. Secondly, it might touch on patterns in the makot. Okay, many people have looked at the makot carefully and noticed certain discrepancies. Just to mention two off the bat, some of the makot are preceded by a warning. Moshe goes to Paro and warns him. Some are not. Some of the makot, the psukim explicitly say that God differentiated between the Egyptians and Am Yisrael. And sometimes the psukim do not say that. And maybe somehow those questions are going to be connected to our issue. Like, why is it that we have these uh, discrepancies or inconsistencies, whether there's a warning whether um, whether it's explicitly said that God separates Am Yisrael and Mitzrayim. And finally, of course, this could have relevance to the deeper meaning of the Makot. What is the purpose of the Makot? What are they trying to accomplish? Clearly, how severe they are could impact on understanding that question. So we have, I think, three different things we'll focus on. The meaning of individual Makot, patterns in the Makot, and the purpose of the Makot, all seen through the lens of our opening question in terms of how dangerous were the Makot. Okay, so let's start right away with Dam. So if we look at into the Makkah of Dam, okay, clearly one could assume, that one could perhaps think that Dam could be very dangerous, right? Water supplies are crucial for any society. At that point, one would say, well, if you don't have any access to water, all you have is blood, right? That is life-threatening right off the bat. However, things are not so simple. Okay, if we go to the, today's source sheet, as you can see, I, I get a little carried away when I start making a source sheet. But uh, if you go, I guess I just keep deciding that all these sources are really important. If you go to the uh, the first source sheet, he points out right away that Dom might not seem as uh, as deadly as that. Wait, if all of the water in the Egyptian areas was blood, so then how could the Khartoumim reproduce the Maka? Right, they couldn't reproduce anything because everything is blood already. Clearly, there's got to be some water that is still in the status of water that they could then reproduce. And he says, Right, it's not true that there was no access to other water. All water on the surface was blood, but one could dig a little bit in a water source and access pure water. And indeed, I don't know if the Ibn even needs to infer this from uh, the Khartoumim. Okay, where else could one know this from? It actually seems to be a Pasuk. Right, later on, the Pesukim say, Okay, so Dam at that point could be a big irritation, but seems to not necessarily threaten the life source of the Egyptians, right? There is still access to water, it's just underground. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Okay, I mentioned that regarding only some of the Makot, does it say that God differentiated between Am Yisrael and the Egyptians? Quite strikingly, it only... I probably shouldn't use the word, it's a bad pun in this context. But, but, um, <laughs> but it only starts to do that from 
the fourth Makkah and An. Okay, if one looks at the Psukim, okay, here we can start with Perichet, Pasuk Yudchet. Okay, so Dam Tzvaydein Kinim, it does not say that there's a distinguishing uh, mode between Am Yisrael and the Egyptians. If you go to Chet Yudchet, okay, I just realized I forgot to tell my son to bring a Tanakh. Mordechai, you can look onto the guy ne- with the guy next to you. Okay, Vifleiti Bayomhu at Eretz Goshen. So there it explicitly says God will differentiate between Eretz Goshen, where the Jews live, and the rest of Egypt, where the Egyptians live. There'll be no Arov where, where the Jews are. Okay, and the Pesukim, again, I went to the wall inside, I'll just mention if those want to look them up. The Pesukim do this four times. It does it again for Dever, that is Perak Tet, Pasuk Dalid, Hiflashem ben Mekinei Yisrael ben Mekinei Mitzrayim. It says it for Barad, Tet Chavav, Rak Beretz Goshen or Shosham Nesel Loaya Barad, and it says it in Yud Chav Gimel in Choshech Ulchol Bnei Yisrael Hayor B'Moshvotam. Okay, so regarding Arov, Dever, Barad, and Choshech, right? The Pesukim explicitly say that oh, the Jews, of course, they were doing just fine where they were; they were not being affected in Goshen, and only the Egyptians were affected. Now, obviously, this raises a very fundamental question: How we understand this? Right? Why would the Torah only say this four times? And not say it every time we'd imagine, they probably say, well, this assumed since elementary school, that the Mako do not happen to Am Yisrael. So let's look at a split here, a very interesting split. Okay, if we go to, we'll skip Ibn Ezra first and go to Rashbam. Okay, Rashbam really represents one school of thought here. Now notice again, the first three, it doesn't say this, for Dam, Tzvaydeh, and Kinim. Says the Ibn Ezra, Rashbam, thank you. Vifleti biyomahu. Right, animals are migrant. They move around. What is the Ben Ezra assuming here? There's some market that would not naturally stay in one area. Right, even if they start in some area, they would just move, they would migrate to another area. And therefore, the Pesukim need to come through and say, no, no, d- despite what you think, naturally the animals will not just stay restricted. They would make their way over the border into Goshen. Here they didn't, right? And then he would have to claim all the market where it doesn't say this is because they're not migrants, right? Blood doesn't move. It just stays where it is. So one body of water became blood and not the rest. And he would have to assume you have to play it through, right? Dams, right? They're keen, et cetera, are not, somehow not naturally meant to expand beyond their local geographic area, where in some other Makot, yeah, there's a need. Just to give you the sense that along the same lines, without getting to too many too much detail here, the Ramban seems to be in the same camp. Look, the Ramban one mark underneath it. Okay, what about Barad? Barad is certainly not migrant in the way that Chayot Raod are. Rak Beretz Goshen or Shamban Yisrael Bavur Shenata Yado Al Hashemayim Bahurid Habarad Hayiraouish Yered Gamal Eretz Goshen Shahavir Shalav Shlaretz Mitzrayim Echadu. Right, things that come from the sky tend to not differentiate between Mitzrayim and Goshen. I guess they have the same rain season or etc. They have the same elements. So therefore you'd think if there's Barad in one area, there's Barad in the next area. Again, notice the common denominator here, this one school of thought, right? Really, what are they all assuming? Obviously the Makot only happened to the Egyptians. That is just obvious. Then you just have to explain why it sometimes points this out and other times does not. That is the common denominator of Rashbam and Ramban. Without getting into too many details, whether we find the theory convincing or not, but I think the basic line assumption is clear. The Makot are things that happened to the Egyptians. Okay, now just to shake things up a little bit, let us go to the Ibn Ezra. Okay, this is the piece we skipped, the third source. Okay, I, now I see I have the wrong piece. Okay, sorry, the Ezra before that. Okay, Ibn Ezra before that. Here we go. Okay, so he starts with the classic Midrash, right? Well, we all know this from second grade, right? If the uh, 
Jews had water, or the Egyptians had water, and they switched hands with each other, it would just magically change in the middle. This is kind of this uh, rationalist critique of those kind of things, Midrashim, which says, if all these miracles happen, why does Chumash not tell us about them? Remarkable Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, you know, shakes us up. But as it's not true, the first three Makot, God did not distinguish between Am Yisrael and the Egyptians. That, why does the Pasuk only say it from the fourth Maka? Because that's the first time it occurred. Right? Till then, Dam Tzvaydi and Kinim happened in all of Egypt, including in Goshen. Right? Okay? In Goshen, there were frogs. In Goshen, there was lice. Now, how is the Ezra going to understand why this is? Look what he says in the next piece. And that's the next piece in the same piece. Next line. Ve'ela ha-shalosh ma'at heziko. What's the Ebenezer's assumption? They're not so damaging. It's not here. Getting back to our question, the Ebenezer seems to say early on in the process, the Maka, they're just a nuisance. It's a big pain to have to dig to get water, but you get the water. It's a pain to have a frog in your living room, but you learn to live with it. Right? These are not things that are life-threatening. These are not things that cause any enduring damage to your to your produce. By the way, we know produce being wiped out. Okay, so it happens in the land of Goshen as well. So let's make a couple of points here. One is the Ebenezer's God has started in one possibility. That earlier in the Mako, there's a nuisance quality to them. Maybe we read, he doesn't say this, but maybe there's a sense of a progression. Maybe the Mako are getting harsher and harsher as we go along. We'll see if that works. We're going to see a theory. It's always tricky. You can try to get 10 things to fit your theory. But we're going to see a theory that's going to say it really is ascending harshness from 1 to 10. We'll see if that works. Okay, but here the Ebenezer has not spelled that out, but he has told us that, no, the first few weren't such a big deal. Right, they were mad as he go, therefore God did not differentiate. Now, you, why, why still would God not differentiate? So I think one could throw in a few things. Okay, one could say maybe God does only extra miracles when it's necessary. Here it's not really necessary because it's not a big deal. Maybe one could assume that obviously even deserves a little bit of a punishment. Right? We have this idea in Chazal, which is really rooted in Navi, right, that Amis wasn't very low spiritual level in Egypt. I always wondered it when I started to learn, like, is that really manifest in Shemot clearly? So you could debate the point, but whether it's clearly manifest in Shemot, it is very much manifest in Nevi'im. Right, Yechezkel portrays us as being Ovdei Vodazar in Mitzrayim. So there's certainly a, quest, a, a statement. You have Midrashim about, really, are the Jews any different than the Egyptians? Why are you saving them? So the Ebenezer doesn't spell this all out, but he would either say that uh, God doesn't make extra miracles, or Ami still deserves a little bit of a, a little slap in the face also. But be, the, be that, okay, we'll get into questions early. Hang in there. Okay, but be that as it may, we now have one theory on the board. Ebenezer would say the first three were not that, not that harsh. Okay. Let us now move on to another issue. We've already seen how this issue of the harshness has touched on issue one. Why does some case, does it say God differentiated? Some case not. According to Ramban Rashbam school, nothing to do with the harshness question. It's about what's migrant and what's not. According to Ibn Ezra, it has to do with how harsh those makod are. And that's why, by the way, he also points out that from the fourth makon, part is a different reaction. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm not going to do it. Those of you want to read on your own, look at the Ibn Ezra I'm skipping now. He says that because this is harsher than it was before, when you get to Arov, power suddenly is shaken up for the first time. Okay. Let us go to the warning question. Why, why do some makot have warnings and some do not? So obviously the first thing to check is which ones do. So here I'm really not going to read all uh, nine psukim inside. Although, of course, reading the ones that don't have warnings would be... That would save time, actually. I don't have to read six inside. But uh, I'm not going to read the six that have warnings inside. I'll just mention what they are. Okay, and probably some of you know this because the pattern is pretty obvious. Dab and Svardaya, there is a warning. Kinim, there is not. Right, Arov and Dever, there is. And then Shechin, there is not. Barad and Arba, there is. And Choshech, there is not. Okay, so it's hard not to notice here that we have three groups of three, constantly with two getting a warning, and the third that does not. And as we'll see shortly, you know, when uh, Rabbi Yehuda gave Siman, which we all say in Haggadah, it was probably more than a mnemonic device. 
Okay, probably it does work. I always find it interesting how mnemonic devices work, even if they don't mean anything. Give the just rip. <laughs> it just has a ring to it, like like Sokatoa and Ditzachadash Bachav. But uh, but apparently it's more. Okay, uh, Dr. Wells, you'll explain that to the non-math people here. Okay, but um, but uh, it's probably more than a mnemonic device. It was probably also a way of reading the psukim carefully and saying, really, we do have different units of makot, and the hatra would be a clue. So if we go to our sheet again. Go to the next question about why there's hatra sometimes and sometimes not. So let's go to the Rashbam, the second to last source on the first page. So Rashbam says, There's a constant pattern of a double warning. And the third maka, there is no warning. Now, the Rashbam doesn't tell us what the point of these units are. Okay, why break them into three? But it's clear in his mind, well, we have a clear message here. There's three sets of Mako. There's the Dams for the Akinim set. There's the Arub Dever Shkin set. That is clearly what's going on. And maybe at that point, you can work it out. Maybe when you're in the third one of the set, you've been warned enough already. Right, whatever each one is trying to do, you got two warnings, that's good enough. You don't need a warning a third time. So I think one approach here, again, this would have nothing to do with how harsh they are. It would simply be a function of the pattern. In the pattern, it's always two warnings, and then the third, you don't get a warning. Okay, great. However, once again, maybe this does touch upon a ratio. We're going to save this funnel for the end here and turn the page and go to very, very interesting Ramban. Okay. Okay, here we go. Let us see what's going on here with the warnings according to, according to the Ramban. Why is there no warning here in Kinim? Uh, things just got very interesting. What does the Ramban say? God really, you know, he cares about humanity, even the Egyptians. They get a chance, right? And therefore, if it's life-threatening, there's a warning. If it's not life-threatening, then there's no warning. Now, two things about this Ramban that need, we need to analyze. First of all, clear according to Ramban, we're going to forget about the progression I said before. Like, based on Ibn Ezra, I said maybe you could have a progression from the least harsh to the most harsh. He says the first three were not so damaging. Clear according to Ramban, that can't be true. Well, Ramban, you have to go back and forth. Right? One and two are life-threatening. Three is not. Four and five are. Six is not. Okay, that's one thing. Number two, let's start to think about individual makot. What might not fit in the long divide so well according to Ramban? Like, what's surprising? Like, some, give me a surprising one that's either life-threatening or not life-threatening according to Ramban. It's surprising that Keenum is not life-threatening? No, Keenum ends up being not life-threatening. There's no Atra. I think that works out okay. Okay, well, let's start going through it. You have to tell me. Thank you. Okay, see, my aunt is in the first row. She knows the answer. Okay, Tzvardea is life-threatening? You know, I mean, frogs are an incredible nuisance. Let's assume that. But most of us would not... You know, they're, not they're not killer frogs. Okay, like, what's happening here? The Ramban would have to assume that Tzvardea is life-threatening. Right? There's mitah Dam in the context of Tzvardea. Okay, so that's interesting. By the way, also just to play something we'll get back to later, the Ramban is going to have to assume that Choshech is not life-threatening. I mean, it's very interesting how this all touches to with each other. Right, you have to assume Choshech, okay, so you can't see and you can't, you know, uh, go out uh, into the fields. But uh, you can still make it to the fridge. You're okay. So we'll come back to We'll come back later. We'll come back later to Choshech. Okay, we'll come back later to Choshech. Okay, but... Uh, but let's talk about Tzvardeya first. Now, the Ramban understands very well, right? The Ramban understands that uh, Tzvardeya is going to be an issue. Look what he does. This is quite interesting. And he takes advantage of the following. I should mention this. is really the Makot you could discuss for a very long time. There are two different accounts in Sefer Tilim of the Makot. Okay, so arguably, if you want extra evidence, you might say, well, maybe I'll see how they're described in the two accounts in Sefer Tilim. He's going to make reference to the account in Ayin Chet. 
What does it say in Tehillim Ayinchet? It's a poetic account of the Makod in Ayinchet. So you have in, per- in Tehillim, Perak Ayinchet, Pasuk Mem Dalet, it says, uh, Mem Hey, excuse me, Yishulach Behem Arov Veyochleim, Utzvardeya Vatashchitem. That's an interesting verb choice, right? Tzvardeya comes and is Mashchit. Mashchit is a pretty powerful verb, right? There's something very, it's destructive, right? It's not uh, just they, they bother you. So let's see the implications of that. So let's go back to the Ramban. So says the Ramban, now he really understands the implications of his idea. So he assumes that, indeed, no, despite the fact what you think otherwise, no, these frogs were deadly, or maybe at least they castrated you, maybe that's a, akin to death. But he says, look at that verb. That verb should tell you that there's something very life-threatening about the tzvardeh. And he says, what about the arbeh? The arbeh is not going to kill you directly. So that's pretty simple what he'll say. Look, if you don't have any crops, you can't live. So the Arbeh might not be directly life-threatening in the sense of a creature attacking you, but certainly there's dangerous implications for the Arbeh. So now we have a totally other theory in, on the books here. So just to sum up the second issue we've had here, our second issue was how come sometimes there's a warning, sometimes there's no warning. If we go with the Rashubam approach, it doesn't touch on our issue at all. It's just patterns, two warnings, third maka in each set, no warning. It's just fulfilling that pattern. If you go to the Ramban, then we have tremendous implications. For the Ramban, say, no, there's a warning if it's life-threatening. And then, as I said, we would not have a progression. We'd have a back and forth. Right? One and two are life-threatening. Three is not. And you have to assume that Svardaya is life-threatening. Okay. Now, in terms of reading carefully, there might be one more relevant verb. Okay, not the verb in Tilim, but the verb in Shemot itself. Okay, how are the Svardaya described in Shemot? So we go to Shemot to Perik Zion, Pasuk Zion. Let's go to Zion. Let's see which verb is used. What is the verb choice in Zion, Chav Zion? In Ma'ena Talashalech, right, there's a warning here, right, not surprising, we said there are warnings for one and two. If you refuse Paro to send out my people, Now, what are the implications of that verb, right, when we have Nun Gimopei, or Yud Gimopei, what, how are we supposed to understand that? So, so, uh, okay, very good, so let's see. So, already, so Rashi and... Uh, a barber already picked up on this, and thank God they knew their Tanakh well enough. They didn't need the Barlan or the Concordance. Let's see where that verb appears and what its implications are. So if we go to Rashi, Rashi says right away, actually, no gaif is not deadly. No gaif at kokvucha, maka. Vechein koloshon magaifa, ain oloshon mita, oloshon maka. I guess Rashi thought this was an important issue. Rashi was already sensitive to this. Wait, how deadly are these frogs? Wait, don't be misled by the word nigaf. Okay, that's uh, actually a bit to be struck. It is not to be killed. How does Rashi know that? The chain, now this is a little trickier. The nogfu ishahara. It is very tricky proof, as we'll see in a second. Okay, why does Rashi think it's a proof? Because what do you have here? People are fighting, they hit the pregnant woman, and she loses the fetus. But what's Rashi thinking? But who's the object, who's being struck? The nogfu ishahara. The woman. And she, she survives. Right, so I said clearly nigifa is not deadly. Right, because, look, she's perfectly fine. I mean, it's obviously a very traumatic and a terrible thing, but she lives the rest of her life. So you see that this verb does not connote death. And I think for a lot of smart people in this room probably could realize, what would the opposite side say? You could still use that verb because the baby, the baby dies, right? There is death lurking there in the pasuk. And maybe the verb does have more sinister implications, even though the woman survives this ordeal. Now, Rashi thinks he has some more proof. Let's keep reading. If you look at those psukim, it's really more like to stumble, right? So, it's, so in those psukim, it's pretty clear that nigaf is not deadly. So Rashi says, look, look at Tanakh. 
I should do like one advertisement here. I always try to tell my students for concordance. Like the concordance is a very funny book because it looks like the most boring book in the world. It's just a list. I actually think it's the most exciting book in the world. Like if you have a word and you can check out, the only thing is, the only, there's only one problem though. You, you want the perfect word. You want a word that appears about 15 times. If it appears two times, you don't have enough evidence. If it appears like 100 times, it's too much work. So but luckily, nigaf is the right kind of word. Okay, so let's see what else we have here in uh, nigaf. So let's go to Barbanel. Now, Barbanel knows all these people in the Rashi's quoting. He's not convinced at all by Rashi's theory, but he also does something else amazing. Okay, a little other, one more uh, radical shift to the way we've always understood the Makot. Let's look at the Barbanel. What are these Tzvardim? Now again, for us, it's hard to think clearly about this field. Of course, they're frogs. So the commentaries say they're those creatures that, you know, crack, that make these crackling sounds in the swamps. Those are frogs, indeed. Okay. They're those animals that hang out in the Nile. I'm sorry, Arabic speakers, I'm going to mispronounce it. Okay, which are? Yes, crocodiles. Correct, alligators. Correct. Okay. Now, if that's right, of course, I, one could suggest that would impact on our question, right? That the crocodiles would be significantly more life-threatening than uh, than, than frogs. Okay. Now, again, this is a minority position. It's a maverick position of Ben Ochanano, but the Barbanel is going to try to argue that he's right. The opposite of Rashi. A Barbanel thinks the implication, the connotations of Nagath is deathly. How does he get this? Those proofs Rashi brought, they don't really work. As you all said, there is mita in the Pasuk. The fetus dies. That's why it's a good verb. That's also tricky. You have to look sometimes which words something's combined with. Rosh would just say, no, Nigifat Regal is something different than a Nigifat Ben Adam, a Nigifat Ish. I admit, says a Barbanel, Nigifat Regal is never death. But Nigifat of a person is deadly, and therefore the Barbanel says, Friday is deadly, and I actually think it's crocodiles and not frogs. Okay, so once again, we see how this opening question I raised touches on so many different things. It touches on what Dam was, now it touches in a very profound way on what Friday was. What's Friday of frogs? Was it crocodiles? Was it deadly? It also connects on how to understand the verb Nagath, how to understand the, ver- the verb Vatashchitem. That's what we have here. So we have the Ibn Ezra regarding the warnings. We have the Ramban regarding, regarding the, um, sorry, the Ibn Ezra regarding the warnings. The Ibn Ezra regarding the differentiation with Am Yisrael and the Ramban regarding the warnings. And now we're ready to move on to number three. Maybe at this point, we'll have a brief, anyone want to raise a comment or question briefly? Okay, maybe I intimidate everybody now that I said that. People are taking the Hamlatsa very seriously. All right, so we're going to move on for now. Okay. Okay, somewhere Rabbi Leaptag is happy. Okay, so let's move on to the next issue. Now, before there's another phrase that's quite unusual right before Barad. Okay, if we go to, let's see which paragraph this is. If we go to Perak Ted Pasuk Yudalad. No, sorry, not Ted Yudalad. Yeah, Ted Yudalad. Here we go. Ah, oh, there it is. Okay, God is about to give a warning. Now, again, this is Barad, so there should be a warning, right? Maka seven has a warning. Says Hashem. Uh, this is a very unusual phrase. Well, what do you mean he's going to say, send koma gefotai? Is there something about barad that is somehow more encompassing than. No, no, notice, it doesn't say it's like the harshest maka, but somehow the most encompassing maka. 
Now, I'm not going to get into the details here. Those of you one could check this up. There are various suggestions why Barad might be kind of this uh, smorgasbord of Makot. Okay, why might there be a variety quality to Barad per se? Okay, of course, the alternative would be that maybe this Pasuk is not a reference to Barad narrowly. What else could it be a reference to? Well, go forget. This is the seventh Makah. So maybe it's a reference to the entire set that is about to come up. We said there are three sets. We'll discuss a little later. By the way, there's other evidence to the three sets beyond the Hatra. Just to mention very briefly, someone might suggest, well, our own brings about the first three Makot. Maybe that also links them. The other things that might link the, uh, the, the three sets of Makot. So maybe it's not about Barad, but about the last set of Makot. Okay, so two Mepharshim suggest that. If we go back to page, uh, we're still on page two, actually. We'll go to Komaget Fotai. Let's look at this front for one second, and the Barbanel really spelled out. It says this front on the bottom of page two. What's he getting at? This is not a statement about Barad narrowly. This is the third category. Those makot that come from above, namely Barad, Arba, and Choshech. So it says the, the don't get, stop trying to forget why, why Barad is so bad or Barad is so varied. This is the introduction to set number three. Set number now again, that doesn't fully stop our analysis because then we have to figure out well, what is it about set number three that merits the term kolmage fotai? But we should expand our reach a little bit. We're not only thinking about barud narrowly now. Now we're thinking about the whole, the whole three. So here, if we go to the barbanel, okay, if you look at the barbanel, he says, actually, let's keep going this for a second. Even after the mark is over, you're going to feel the effects of it. Right, he would like to argue that all the other makot they're really irritating, but once they're over, they're over. Right, you know, when Kinim leaves, you don't have feel the you don't feel it anymore. When Sfardeya leaves, they're not there anymore. But from Barad Arben Choshech, there's somehow a a lingering problem even after they're gone. Clearly, if it destroys your crops, there's a lingering problem. Right, the Sfardeya would have to assume that Choshech somehow lingers also. Like even when the light comes back. Uh, you just don't return to normal life the way you did right before that. So now, if this fun is right, notice what's happening once again. Maybe there's something harsher about the last set. We seem to be heading in that direction once again. We saw it in the Ibn Ezra on the other end, right, that maybe the first three were so light that they appeared to apply to Amisol also. If we say that Kolmage Lefotai is really addressing the last set, maybe there's somehow something very, very significant about the last set. Now, the Abarbanel also is going to argue something more deadly about the last set. Again, here I think, that if, before we discussed Tzfaideya, is kind of the thing that, uh, that kind of sticks out. Here I think Choshech is interesting. Like, how should we conceive of Choshech? I think Barad and Arba are a little bit easier. If you want Barad and Arba to be life-threatening, well, you just say, maybe they're not life-threatening in the direct sense, but if you have no crops, you have a famine, right? That's life-threatening. Right, so Barad and Arba, you can make an easy case for what about Choshech? So this is something that the Mepharshim pick up on, and that leads us to our next individual analysis. What exactly is the Makkah of Choshech, and what is the certain phraseology in the Torah mean? Before we get there, I'm going to say one line to Barbanel. Barbanel also says it's not... Actually, we'll just read the Barbanel. We can go through it quickly. Very clear. It is not just Barad. Barad is not any more encompassing than anything else. It's the whole last set. Okay, now I'm skipping down to the fourth line. Right, 
There it is. Arbe's life threatening because of famine. Here's the key, the key one. Okay, so he doesn't really spell it out here, actually. He, does not, he just says, uh, Okay, we're now going to try to spell out what exactly was Choshech. So here we're going to have another phrase that requires analysis. Okay, how does the Torah describe what happened to the Egyptians during the Makkah of Choshech? So we go to Perik Yud, Pasuk Chav Gimel. It says there's Choshech in the whole land. What happens to them? They couldn't see each other. Okay, that's not too surprising. After all, it's Choshech. What about that, though? What does it mean, Now, I think we're all... Okay, so we're all ready to jump in right away and say, well, obviously they couldn't move. Right, that's what it means. And we've heard Midrashim that maybe there was a thick quality to the darkness. It wasn't only an absence of light. It wasn't only a negation, a privation. Maybe there was actually a positive quality to it, something thick that would hold you in place. Okay, and maybe, again, you have to be careful. Because, you know, there's always this temptation, unfortunately, which you decide, like, everything you learned in second grade must be wrong as you go along. Okay, but there's no reason to assume that. Okay, you know, I, I think Sundays in my life I've had a following three-part trajectory. Okay, first you learn the Midrashim in first grade. Then in, you know, high school or in Yeshiva you decide that was silly and you go into the shot, And then, like, get a little older, you start to appreciate that you come back to the Midrash again. In this particular case, it might be true the Midrash is shot. Okay, what does it mean, lo kam so let's look at a little debate between Rashi and Ibn Ezra. We're on the top of page three. What does this phrase mean, So Rashi says, well, what all of us assumed? Here it is. What does that mean? If you were sitting when the Makkah started, you can't get up. Omed, you were standing, that's it. It was like a, it was freeze. You couldn't move. Right, the Choshech came in, it was some heavy quality to it, and you couldn't move. Now, clearly, that is a pretty serious maka. If you cannot move for three days, okay, that's dangerous. Okay, however, let us go with the Ibn Ezra. Now, again, you might, have, you might say, of course, that's shot. What else could it mean, lo kamuish tachtav? Okay, however, look at the Ibn Ezra. Lo kamuish tachtav mi beito. What does the Ibn Ezra think it means? You couldn't leave the house. It doesn't mean you couldn't move. Okay, where does he get this from, that lo kamuish tachtav could mean you couldn't leave the house? So he's got a great proof. Now he's a great proof. It's, it's a couple of prakam away. What do you have with the uh, the mun? They're told. What are they told there? Okay. They're, they're not told, don't move, freeze. They're told, don't leave. Now, so there you have the phrase taktav in the sense of being in one local area, being in your domain, not going out. Not in the sense of you can't move. Now clearly, now let's just keep reading for one second. According to Ben Ezra, what's going on? You're very interested in Ben Ezra. Ki According to Ben Ezra, lo tachtav is not like an aspect of the maka, like there's some quality to choshech that's causing it. Why is it true lo kamuish tachtav according to Ben Ezra? Because if there's a blackout, you stay in the house. That's what we all do. You don't go into the streets when there's no electricity. When there's a blackout, you stay inside. That's all it means. It doesn't mean the people were frozen. Now clearly, if we go back to our question, like how dangerous was choshech? I think we come to a very, very different conclusion if we're in the Rashi camp here or, or in the Ibn Ezra camp. If we're in the Ibn Ezra camp, so they couldn't, they didn't leave the house because it was dark outside. But arguably they had whatever remnants of food they had, they had, and they could walk around. And at that point, it's not as life-threatening, or maybe not life-threatening in the slightest. Whereas if you hold like Rashi, that they literally couldn't move for three days, so you might wonder, like, well, it's not so, you can't survive so easily. Did it, did it, I think there's even a Midrashic view that the Jews fed them during that time period. Okay, I forgot to look it up before this year, but neither is such a Midrash. But then, obviously, that points to the fact that it would be, again, dangerous. So, again, we now have another area in which to investigate our issue. What is Komage Fotai? Is it just Barad or the last set? 
if it's the last set, it would seem to indicate the last set is more dangerous. That touches on how we understand Choshech. And again, we have another suggestion that maybe things are getting more dangerous as we go along. Okay, before we get to the next section, I want to give another chance. I want to make a comment or question now. Yeah, sure. That is a good comment or question. Okay. That, that's always appropriate. You didn't have to wait for me to say that. Okay, you know, next time we're going to put in small letters that only people from New York are allowed to come to my show. Okay, if, and here, I hope no one's insulted, but if you're from England or South Africa, you can't come. Okay. Okay, no, then you can come. That's for other reasons. Okay. All right, so let's move on to... Uh, okay, I'll try to slow down. Thank you. I apologize. Okay, I guess I'm too excited about the ideas here. Okay, let's move on to the developmental theory. Again, what have we done so far? We've investigated Dam, Tzvardei, and Choshech. We investigated when there's a warning, when there's no warning. We've investigated this phrase, Kalmage Fotai. We've investigated the question of when does God say he differentiates between Am Yisrael and the Egyptians. What do we have? If we put all that aside and ask what evidence do we have in terms of our opening question, how dangerous are the Makot? We have the following evidence. Ibn Ezra's theory, first three, God does not differentiate because they're not so dangerous. Mat Haziko. Ramban, there's a Hatra whenever it's life-thinning. Clearly, the Ramban moves us away from the progression theory. In the Ramban, it goes back and forth. According to Ramban, there is no assumption of any progression whatsoever. Okay, so the Ibn Ezra helps the progression theory. Ramban would work against it. The Komage Fotai might help the progression theory also. If we say Komage Fotai is the entire last set, and the entire last set is somehow more encompassing or more threatening than the earlier ones, maybe we have a sense of things getting harsher as they go along. Okay, let us go to two sources that develop that theory. Okay, first we'll start with the Medrash Tanhuma. Okay, the Medrash Tanhuma uses a, I mean, it's page three, uses a mashal to explain the progression of the Makot. The Medrash says as follows, What's the strategy of a human king? It's like a king with an army and you're laying siege on another area. Okay, first you send the legions, and they, they, they don't come in yet. They just surround it. And you try to cut off their water supply. So you, you dam up the water. If they give in, that's fine. And you move on. You start to do other things, and arrows, and without going to what all these things are, clearly, what are we setting up here? But the Makod has kind of like God's assault, as it were, God's siege on Mitzrayim. Okay, the siege begins with surrounding them, as it were. Then this, then God cuts off the water. Obviously, that's Makadam. Then you make some noise. Tzvardea. You send arrows. Kinim. Right, again, without going through all the parallels, maybe you'll find some parallels more convincing than others, but you have the progression of a siege. Now, again, if you have the progression of a siege, clearly, how does it tend to work? Things get harsher and harsher as the siege moves along, as the siege progresses. So if you're going to work with this imagery the imagery of the army surrounding a city, trying to make the conditions harsher and harsher so that people give in, so clearly you'd have the progression. Okay. Let us now go to the Rabag. Okay, the Rabag is a parish that uh, unfortunately doesn't get used so much. Well, he's not in the Makro Gdod or in the Tart Chaim, and uh, he's not in version 18 of the Barlan. I don't know if he's in version 22. Okay, but uh, when he's in the Barlan, he'll start to get used more. But I had to type this in, so I think there are one or two typos here. Okay, just very briefly, the Rabag is Rabbi Levi Ben Gershom, was a Rishon from Provence, very interesting fellow. He was a Jewish philosopher and a Bible commentary, commentator, and an astronomer. In fact, I believe there was a crater on the moon named after him. You could go uh, Google it afterward. Okay? I don't remember exactly what it's called, but I believe there was a crater on the moon named after the Rabag. Okay, what's it called? Rav Levy. Okay, Rav Levy. There you go, a crater named Rav Levy. 
Okay, I assume he's the only rabbinic crater on the moon, right? Okay. Okay, so let's see now. Uh, okay, let us see what the Rabbag says. The Ra- now, the Rabbag is going to be very adamant about this theory of the progression. Look at the Rabbag. Okay, I'm sorry, on page three. In fact, the Rabbag is going to be... There's always a tricky thing. When you, I'll say one thing also about theories. That grand theories are always tricky. Sometimes, like, local theories are easier because you can explain, like, a couple of facts, you're in good shape. When you want one theory that explains everything, there's always something very tempting about it. Right, and there's always something a little tricky about it. You always feel like you have to squeeze one. There's always like one that doesn't fit perfectly. The Rabag is going to argue that the Makut are a progression, a steady progression. Two is worse than one, three is worse than two, four is worse than three, five is worse than four. That's a tricky theory to work out. Because then it's not just in some general sense that the earlier ones are easier, but you have to almost like do it in this very mathematically precise sense. So let's see if the Rabag can play through. But again, there's something appealing about the theory. Right, God is giving the Egyptians a chance, and God's a merciful God, and even the wicked get another chance. And here we're saying, okay, things will get st- slowly and steadily worse, and we'll see if you are able to release Am Yisrael. So let's see how the Rabag is going to play the theory through. Now, again, getting back to some of our issues, because you see how everything connects here. Right, what's the Rabag? We discussed Tzvardea, and we discussed Choshech, and we saw there was ambiguity about both of them. Right, our Tzvardea frogs or crocodiles was Choshech, that you couldn't move or just you didn't leave the house. Well, Rabag is clearly going to have to assume that Sfardea is not particularly deadly, and Choshech is very dangerous. So let's see how the Rabag plays it through. Before we have one more radical Chiddush here, guys. There's a third radical shift. First one was the Ibn Ezra, that some of the Makot had affected the Jews. Second one was the Barbanel's idea that you know that Sfardea was a crocodile. And here's the third one. Okay? What did Rabag just do? Rabag just said that the first Makkah is actually not Dam, but is Tanin. Now again, we could all protest. It goes against the Ditzach Adash Bachav. It's going to ruin that mnemonic device. But let's see what the Rabag is doing here. I will just point out one thing. I, I think the first time I saw it, I, I was negative. I, I think my, I was unfairly negative. I think we relate the Tanin. What do we think of? We think of when Moshe does the Oto earlier. But when he does the Otod earlier, he's doing them before B'nai Yisrael. Right? The Tanin, if you, there's actually a break. I mean, what happens the first time Moshe, the first time Moshe comes before Paro, he doesn't do this before Paro. He asks for them to go, right, get this vacation. And Paro says no and makes things worse, of course. Right? And then Amisol complains. And then other things happen. For example, there's like a family tree that happens. And only after that in Perak Zion, okay, again, after the family tree in the beginning of Perak Zion, but Yom Hashem Moshe Reina Ticha Elohim and then you have the Tanin, sorry, in Pasuk Chet, you have the paragraph with the Tanin. And then Yudalid, you have Dam. So in theory, you could say actually where Tanin is grouped in the larger structure of Sefer Shmot, Tanin is grouped more with the Makot than with the uh, other Otot. Right? Again, they're Otot that Moshe does for Am Yisrael when he initially comes back to Mitzrayim. But then a bunch of other things occur. Then there's a family tree. Then you have the Tanin, and then. Dom. Now, I realize one thing I think that's holding us back here, perhaps, is the word maka. But for, for sake of argument, maybe it's the wrong word. Maybe it's a misleading word. Maybe we should call it the otot. Right? So the psukim keep referring to otot. Maybe that's what it is. There are not 10 otot. There are 11 otot. And they begin with tanin. Well, it's not inconceivable. Like, why not? Maybe that's true. Maybe we should get over what we've assumed till now. And now, if that's true, if the Bag is right, it's going to shift everything. One thing it shifts, well, actually, it's great for his theory, because what does the Rabag want? A steady progression from the least dangerous or the least da- damaging to the most. So what they, the Tanin, 
does not affect anybody. So if you look what he says here, uh, so he says, oh sorry, back to the first line. Okay, what's the claim? Well, no one's affected by that. Not in Paro. Okay, it's not a crisis. If uh, your mata, I guess maybe it's a crisis, but you're not hurt by it, right? Your mata changes into tanin. So then tanin, no one's hurt. Dam is a bit of an irritation. And then things start slowly get worse as you get along. I'm just going to jump around a little bit in the interest of time. Right, from Dam to Tzvardea. Sorry, from Tzvardea to Kinim, he wants to argue that uh, the Kinim get in your clothes also. Bibbisaram tok levushem. So you're kind of, you're more intimately attacked. You're more violated with Kinim than you are with Tzvardea. That's why it's worse. Then when you get further down, he's going to argue that the Barad to Arbe. The Pesukim say that the Arba finished all the produce that was left from the Barad. So clearly that means Arba is a step beyond what Barad did. So if you go through, I've got to go through all those who are curious can read through it. I'd say, I apologize. I think there are two typos in here, but they shouldn't hold you back. And then when you get to, let's go to Choshech. What's he going to do with Choshech? So if we skip to, uh, this is the third pack, last paragraph on the page, second line. Okay, Acharkan. Okay, we'll start with the Arba. So there it is, right? They lose their food supply totally. Barad did not totally destroy the food supply. Arba comes in, and now there's nothing left. Now there's something that's even more painful. Look what he says now. This is remarkable, because the Rabag is assuming that they're getting progressively worse. And he says, Choshech is not deadly. So he would have to argue, it seems like he's arguing that none of them are actually direct causes of death till you get to Makat B'chor. Now, what's so bad about Choshech? V'hu ha-Choshech ha-Chazak she-etmid lahem shloshet yamim, ba-ofen shelo kamu ish mitaktav lo ishetachiv, ki gam haner lo me'elam ufidati, v'sibadzeh, what happens if you can't have any light. Notice, he's, Rabag is going to have to be in the Rashi camp because he wants Choshech to be harsh. So there's a thickness to the darkness. You could feel it. Again, it's not just an absence of light. And then again, back to that. Right? If you can move, you, get your, you can get to your food. If you can't move, you can't get to your food. So on one hand, Rabag is back with Rashi and against the Ibn Ezra. Lokamush Tachtav really means they can't move. On the other hand, he's not saying it's deathly, actually. He still wants to say, no, there's a steady progression till you get to the ultimate punishment, which is Makabachorot. That's the first time you really have death. So in terms of what I call the progression theory, we've now, as it were, progressed from Ibn Ezra and from the Barbanel on Kol Magefotai. We have the Midrash using this imagery of the siege, Everything gets steadily worse in the siege. And we have the Rabag saying it's actually exactly mathematical. One to ten, things get steadily worse. Choshech is quite bad, but it's still not deadly until you get to Makat Bechor. Okay? Now we get to the closing to Chidushim. Okay. There is a very interesting uh, parish by a fellow named Reggio. Okay? Yitzchak Shmuel Reggio. He was an Italian commentator on Tanakh in the 1800s. Okay, a little bit like Shadal. He actually corresponded with Shadal by letter. He's a little bit like Shadal in the sense he was kind of like this masculine figure who uh, was fighting like on the right wing on the one hand and the left wing on the other end. So he has a parish called Parish Yashar. And he makes a very interesting point in terms of how the Psukim describe what's going to take place here. Let's go back to Parag Zion. And look, how do the Psukim describe what's going to happen 
what's going to happen in the Makot. Okay, Paragzine. We're back to Paragzine. Let's look at this whole Keta here. Because in theory, Paragzine is the introduction to the Makot. So the introduction to the Makot should be telling in terms of what really, what the Makot really all about. What's their purpose? Right? How does God introduce what the Makot are going to be? Let's see what we have over here. Okay, just, as an aside, it's really not my topic here. I spoke about this a little bit last year, actually. Okay, Navi clearly does not only mean a seer or a visionary. Right? Aaron is not Moshe's Navi. Right? Moshe is the ultimate prophet. Right? So here you see that Navi might be more of a spokesperson than a seer. Right? Many Mepharshim say the word Navi comes from Nib Svatayim. Right? The fruit of the lips. So I would say Aaron is your spokesperson more than your seer. Okay? We, so those who are curious, it might be different than Ro'er or Jose, but that's for another time. That's for last year's year. I'm going to harden Paro's heart. And what am I going to accomplish? What am I going to bring about? What am I going to bring about? Otod and Moftim. Now notice, the Pasuk, it's very interesting how terminology works. I think sensitivity to language is a big part of understanding the world. Okay, it does not say, again, if we, what, what happens in your elementary school play? By right, a big sign, well, what would God say to Moshe in every elementary school play? I'm now going to bring about the Makot, right? The ten Makot. That is not what it says here, right? I'm going to bring about Otod Umoftim. Okay, now we have to figure out what they are, but that's how it's described. I'm going to start bringing Otod Umoftim. Next, Pasuk. V'lo yishmalechem paro. Paro is not going to listen to you. V'natati dedibim mitzrayim. How am I going to bring them out? Bishvatim gedolim, with great judgments, or maybe we should translate it as great punishments. Right, but now two different things have happened here. Wait, the again, I, I'm a, I'll use the word makot. Excuse me. The makot that are about to come are described as ototai umoftai, and they're described as shvatim gedolim. Arguably, we could have two different things going on. An ot and mofet need not be a punishment. It might maybe maybe we should translate it as some kind of like theological statement or some kind of educational endeavor, right? One recurring motif throughout the makot are things like that lamante da, right? You should know kien kamoni those kinds of things, right? Clearly, there's an educational component to the makot, and again, probably with two different audiences in mind, right? There's an education component to the makot, both for Am Yisrael and for the Egyptians. So that's an interesting question. We're not going to touch here. Like, is there a primary audience? Is there a secondary audience? Who's the, and what exactly is the message? Because the different phrases used, what are you supposed to know about God? That God exists? That God is a providential God? Leaving that aside, we can confidently say there's some kind of educational message, some kind of theological statement happening in the Makot. And clearly, it's not an accident that's happening in Egypt, right? The empire, the world power of the time, right? Stand for certain ideology and to confront, you know, what ethical monotheism is. Okay, fine. So now we have that of the Otodom of Tim, but then we also have the Shvatim Gdolim. You have punishments. Now I admit, in theory, someone could say, you know, the Makot could do double duty. Right? It is very possible for, you know, God to do an act that is simultaneously educational and a theological statement, as well as, as well as a punishment. So in theory, we could say that. How about just to explore for a second whether I think intriguing possibility? I should just ask. Have I slowed down successfully? Okay. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So one other. Great. Okay. One other. By the time we get to the end of this year, it'll be uh, really slow. You'll be asking for it to be faster. Okay. So uh, 
what, there's another possibility though. It's not that the same makot are both otod and moftim and shvatim gdolim. What might we say? Some makot are otod and moftim, and other makot are shvatim gdolim. Again, I admit, there's no proof. The mere fact that they're two different terms is not a proof. Because the same thing could be both an Oden Mofet and Shvatim Gyolim. But it does, it does set up an intriguing possibility. Maybe they're Oden Moftim in the game, in the endeavor, and maybe they're Shvatim Gyolim in the endeavor. Now, clearly that would impact on, again, back to our opening question. Wait, are the Mako life-threatening? Are they harsh? Are they severe? Well, maybe that depends. If they're Oden Moftim, it would not be so important that they be severe. It's really just to understand that God runs the world. Okay, if they are shvatim gdolim, then you need some kind of severity, right? Clearly, tanin is not going to be shvatim gdolim, right? There is no punishment involved whatsoever. So let's start to explore that a little bit. So the first person I saw picked up in this was this fellow, uh, Rav Reggio, from Italy in the 1800s. Let's see the parish Yashar here on page 4. Okay, so we're now on page 4, looking at the first source on page 4. Verbetit ototai moftai, mimashe karam ototu moftim, lo yuvan, elashi yased verem mechudashim lemala min teva. What does Otodom of Timin, according to Rabbi Reggio? You are doing miracles. Look what he says. He claims, again, this is an assumption. Oh, if it's an Ot, Ot is not about giving people pain. Ot's not about punishment. Ot is about teaching someone a lesson. That's what an Ot's about. So if they're Otod, Otod are not about inflicting pain. Okay, but then he says, wait. But wait. But they're also, there's punishments. So what is he going to assume? Now he has a, one more new theory coming up. So no, sorry, there aren't three sets, there are four sets of makot. Okay, here we go. Okay, you know, this is really, I'm really out of character here. Like, there's a certain kind of shir that loves to say, you know, we thought that's your life, but it's all wrong, this is the truth. I actually hate to do that, but I've done it like four times today. But okay, here we go. What are the four sets of makot? Haseder Rishon, Tanin, Dam, now, like Rabag, interesting, right? He assumes that Tanin is the first one. Again, well, it's even better according to him, right? Because he, you know, it's not punishing. He says they're Otod, so why shouldn't Tanin be listed? On the, of course Tanin's listed. So it's Tanin, Adam Tzvaydeya. Habet, Kinim Arov Dever. Hagimel, Shkin Bar Arba. Hadalid, Choshech Machabakar, Kriyat Yamsov. You might as well stick Kriyat Yamsov in there also. And then, you, then it's mathematically neat, because now instead of, you know, Three, you know, it might be bothered by this at the Seder. It's three, three, and four. Right, but now, according to uh, Rav Reggio, no, it's four sets of three. Right, there are four sets of makot, and they begin with tanin and end with kriyat yamsuf. Okay, now how does it work in terms of his question? Again, again, he's working off the terminology. The ototum of tim and the shvatim gdolim. Vinei l'kol seder kadam ofedachad nikra tochachad v'talulim v'imaka kala sheishba ma'atzar yeah, something very interesting emerges. According to him, what happens here? Every set begins with something very light. And the light thing is really, it's more like in the Odom fate category. Right? And then afterwards, you get to, so what are they? Now, something very interesting emerges. He still has, yeah, let me point this out. Maybe we need a chart here. Okay, but we'll do, we'll do okay without a chart. Okay? If you, uh, those of you from the Shiva Flappish, Rabbi Elech would be upset with me now that I didn't make a try about this. But okay, it'll be okay. So look at the, notice what happened here. He has on this list, Kinim, Shechin, and Choshech. That's a, th- let's leave out Tanin for a second. That's a threesome we encountered together before. Why do we encounter that threesome together before? There's no, the last of the three. There's no, but Lodford just happened, something amazing happened. For Reggio, it's exactly the opposite. 
right? In the standard set of units, what did we say in the Rashbam? There's three sets of three, as it were. And each time, two warnings and the third one doesn't get a warning. But if you set up the Mako the way Rev Reggio does it, you actually have what used to be the last of the set has now all moves to become the first of the set. Right now, it still fits nicely that there's no Hatra'ah, because he would say, a little bit Ramban-like, it's not a big deal, those Makot. Those Makot are really the Otomo fate and not the Shvatim Gdolim. And therefore, they do not need a, a warning. So again, so I think we've gotten two things. We'll get to the, the last approach here. I think I've gotten a couple of nice Chidushim from our Reggio. Actually, maybe three things. One, the idea that Tanin and Kriya Yamsev would be included in the list. KB, the sense that maybe a little bit more Ramban-like, would be like a back and forth in terms of how harsh they are. And see this idea, that's because they're really serving two different purposes. There's the Odom fate category, which are not meant to be harsh. And there's the Shvatim Gdolim category, which is meant to be a punishment. So naturally, you'd expect, when you have the Odom fate, they're not harsh. When you have the Shvatim Gdolim, they are, and they go back and forth. Did you want to say something? Please. Which one? I'm sorry? Oh, so he uh, does not follow it. He's okay. He, he, yeah, sorry. He assumes that that is uh, an area of life where one uh, does not have to follow the the tenetic position. Okay, which I think is okay. Like we could debate. Okay, I'll say it this way. Okay, don't don't, uh, don't take this to heart. I'm just using it for humor, humorous purposes. Okay, we could say we definitely have to rely on Chazal and Halakha, and we could debate Chazal's role in. I say we'll say we, we definitely have to rely on them for fundamental beliefs. We could debate whether we have to rely on them every ergodic statement. We could debate their medical advice, but maybe it's agreed we don't have to follow their mnemonic devices for the makot. Maybe that's agreed. Okay, that's okay, right? So okay, that was one version, but uh, I understand a different way of how to organize the makot. Okay, all right. Now we get to the last theory here. Okay, and before we get to this last theory, maybe we'll go back to a sfarta that I skipped. We can go back to the first page. Okay, and then let's try to, I know we did uh, covered a lot here. By the way, speaking quickly doesn't enable you to cover more ground than now in five minutes. So there are, there are advantages. Okay, but let, uh, let us see a Sparno, and then I will do a, a summary at the end, because I think we really, uh, we really got a lot done here. Okay, look at this Sparno at the end of the first page. Okay. Vahachat, I'm going to back to the first page. We're going to see two pieces in the Sparno. Sparno, very, very important commentary. Okay, also from Italy. Okay, it says the Sparno, Vahachat of Arts, Lo Hitrebeparo, so as we've seen many times, right, kinim, shchin, and choshech, there's no warning. Why is that? Now notice I made a joke before about the numerical uh, evenness of it, but he assumes that the last b'chor is really a separate category. That really even in the three groups it is numerically even. There's the tzach, there's the dash, and it's really ba'ach. Okay, the, the last bed of is just thrown in for memory purposes. It's not really part of the third unit. Now, notice what phrase he used, which will be sensitive since we've seen Revegio. What did he call, how did he refer to these? Otod and Moftim. Kimakat b'chorot lo haita l'ot v'lo l'mofet, avol haita l'onesh, kimavur l'mal. Now, this is very interesting. Right, and again, it could be without Revegio, I wouldn't have noticed exactly what this one is doing here. But he doesn't use the phrase shvatim gdolim, but maybe he's playing off that. And he's again doing this division. But instead of having a back and forth, right, he is suggesting there's a split between nine... And ten. Nine are Otodom of Tim. Again, these phrases, Laman Teda, Bavor Teda, you should know these things about God. Those are what the first nine are about, educating Am Yisrael, educating the Egyptians. Maka Bechor, that's not education anymore. That's really a punishment for people who are evil. That's what's going on in the tenth Maka. Now, why does this fit in with the Hatra'ah? So let's keep going. So he says, Vinei Datsach, you are Otod Beshtei Sodot Akvidim, Vadashi, you are Otod Bale Chayim, Ubach, you are Otod Bavir, 
you go back to the Rashbam, once it's three sets of three, why is there no hatra for maka three, six, and nine? Because it's part of the unit. The whole idea of the unit is you get a hatra twice and not the third time. I just mentioned one thing in terms of this debate. We'll, we'll make you happy, actually. We'll go back to uh, Chazal over Rav Reggio. Okay? What we now have a debate on how to break up the makot, right? The Sfarn is with Chazal here. Ditzach, Hadash, Ba'ach. Rav Reggio is saying, no, no, put Tanin in the first and have four, and create Amsa for the end and have four groups. If the Hatra was the only source support for Chazal and the Sforno, right, then in theory, Rav Reggio has dealt with that. But I, I alluded before, there are other supports also. Just to mention very briefly again, the first three are all brought about by our own arguably the last three are the ones that come from the Avir. Uh, there's a, there are other hints in the Pesukim, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, one, four, and seven, it says Baboker. There might be other things that set up, actually, you have to work out, choose maybe the pattern will work the other way, also come to think of it. No, I, I just realized I'm going to take that back, actually, because in theory, the one, four, and seven is not going to work, because anyhow, this is a good mathematical point here. Anything that's just a matter of the right uh, structure could fit into anybody's structure, could structure just as much, right? Or just instead of be one, four, and seven, it would be two, five, and eight. Right, so that actually is not a proof. But I think there are other unifying factors. Let's say the fact that Aaron does the first three. There are other things that suggest the Chazal Sforno breakup over the Rev Reggio breakup. But Nagy is according to Sforno. What do you have here? We have a nine versus one. Nine are a totem of Tim. Ten is Shvatim Gdolim. I think this has both interpretive implications and interesting theological implications. If we can go back to the last source, okay, back to the last source of page four, we'll see the implications and we'll sum up this year. Let's go back to the last source. And this is a, a, a very powerful theme in Sfarno. Sfarno has, has certain humanistic impulses here. That's what we have in this Sfarno. Okay, now, what might me think, what might me think, actually, that's before we even look at this one, actually. Let's just think as uh, close readers. What might me think that Maka Bechorid is a different category than all the other nine Makot? Besides the fact, that obviously, it's a lot more deadly. Okay, what else might me think that that's another category? Okay, just in terms of uh, placement in Humash or how things are described. Okay, I mentioned a second ago that uh, the introduction to the Makot is Perg Zion, and then we paid attention to the phraseology. Ototai, Moftai, Shvatim, Gdolim. Okay, is it really true that the first time the Makot are alluded to is in Perg Zion? Where, where, where is something alluded to beforehand? Okay, very good. If you go back to Perg Dalid, okay, in Perg Dalid, Pasuk, Chav Gimel, actually, we, we, the Sneh is a good point, but even after, but after the Sneh, that mysterious story with the Malone, arguably the most difficult story to decipher in Chumash. Like, thank God I'm not giving sure on that story. Okay, but uh, if you look at Pasuk Chav Gimel, what do you have? Sorry, Chav Bet. What does God say to Moshe? Now, obviously, it fits there thematically because Moshe's son is going to be in danger. That's clear. But nonetheless, there's also, beyond that illusion, there's also a clear reference to Makat B'chorot. Now, you have Makat B'chorot being set aside, right? There's no reference to anything else going on. There's no allusion to Choshech or Arbe or Dever. There's relation. Now, again, one could say, okay, it's the culmination, it's the harshest, but maybe it's set aside because it's something totally different, right? That's why it appears in Paragdalad, distinct from all the other Makot. Indeed, perhaps it's not an accident, the Sferna picks up on it right on that Pasuk. Look at this Sferna. Now, clearly this is Midah Keneg Midah, right? The Egyptians are throwing Jewish boys in the Nile. So this is the most appropriate punishment. Look what he says here. 
you wouldn't necessarily need, you, by the way, you could come with Mida Kenegi Mida throughout the Makot, clearly. Like, our Dom could be symbolic of the Jewish babies in the Nile, clearly. But he, he, he would say, no, you don't need Mida Kenegi Mida till the 10th. That's the one that's an Onish. Here it is. What kind of God do we have? Right, again, an amazing thing about the Hudri Bansham is, right, even the Rashem get a chance, right, the Rashem had a chance to do Tshuva. Those are the earlier stages of the Makot. In the earlier stages of the Makot, there is, again, the educational theological statement, and those that get the message can do so. But unfortunately, sometimes your time runs out, and when the time runs out, you get to a real Onesh, and that is... Makat Bachot. As I mentioned, I think the Sfarna is a, a classic humanitarian impulse in the Sfarna that God wants to give people a chance. Same time, humanitarian impulses run out also. Right, and at some point, right, the Onish comes in, and then the break really is the first nine Makot and the tenth. Okay, let me sum up what we've done because I think we've done a lot. Okay, but I think you saw why this opening question I asked. Again, I only asked the question for the first time like two years ago. Okay, I'll do it slowly. Okay, were the Makot dangerous or not? I think it touches on every aspect of the Makot. Okay, here we go. Were they dangerous or not? Question one. Why sometimes does it say that God differentiating the Jews and the Egyptians? For some of the Makot and not for all. If you're in the Ramban Rashbam camp, what would you say? Well, if it's migrant, the Pasuk needs to tell you. But other cases, the Pasuk doesn't need to tell you. What's the assumption? All the Makot happened only to the Egyptians. Standard assumption. Ibn Ezra, not true. The first three Makot happened to the Jews as well. Why was that okay, says Ibn Ezra? Ma'at Heziko. So one theory on the board, first three Makot are not such a big deal, Ibn Ezra. Next. Why is there sometimes a warning and sometimes not a warning? Okay? If you go with the Rashbam Sparna theory, it's all about the sets. It's not about the harshness. Right? Twice a warning, third one, no warning. It's just about the sets. Ramban, there's a warning if it's deadly. There's no warning if it's not deadly. Clearly, the Ramban, we don't have the progression. Deadliness goes back and forth in the Ramban. Warning, no warning. What about individual... Oh, sorry, next. Kalmage Fotai, what does that mean? It could just be Barad. A barbanel in front, assume it's the last set. What's their assumption? The last set is somehow harsher than what took place before. Again, evidence for the progression theory. Individual makot depend on our question. What is Tzvardea? Is it frogs? Not particularly dangerous. Is it crocodiles? Quite dangerous. Depends on how you read words. What's the implications of atashchitem in Tilim? Ramban thought that means it's dangerous. What's the implications of nigaf? What does that word mean? Rashi says it's not mita, like with a pregnant woman. Abarbanel says, no, it is mita. It's the fetus that we're talking about in that, that we're alluding to by using that verb. So it's Friday is affected. What about choshech? What's choshech? If we're in the Ramban camp, choshech has to be not particularly serious, right? It might depend on with the Hatra question. We saw Rashi. They couldn't move. You can't move. That's dangerous. We saw the Abarbanel. No, not the Abarbanel. The Ibn Ezra. Lo kamuish tachtav doesn't mean you can't move. So that means you can't leave the house, but you can make it to the kitchen. Right at that point, it's not necessarily... Just let me finish the 24 for one second. It's not necessarily life-threatening. So again, notice Friday is affected by this, and Choshech is affected by this. Finally, we saw some larger theories. What are the larger theories? Both in Midrash and the Rabag, we have a progression. The Rabag is adamant. It is a steady mathematical progression from 1 to 10. According to Rabag, the Makar are getting steadily worse. Okay, and notice the Rabag threw one thing in we haven't seen yet. The Rabag said Tanin is one of the Makot. And then it's great for his theory. Tanin is the least bothersome of all. It doesn't bother anybody. And then you get worse and worse as it goes along. Rav Reggio agreed the Rabag to Tanin. He had this new radical theory that there's four sets of three, including Kriya Yamsov. And in his theory, again, but one other contribution he made, it depends whether it's not the Otot Umoftim or the Shvatim Dolim. Now, as I said, I admit it's not a proof because you could say the same Makot are both. But if you divide them, that's intriguing. 
Says the Rav Regio, you go back and forth between Otodom of Tim and Shvatim Dolim, which are a punishment. Finally, we come to the Svarna, I think working off the same terminology as Rav Regio. They're Otodom of Tim and they're Shvatim Dolim. The Otodom of Tim, but he has a totally different, it's not back and forth. It is nine verse one. Nine Makod or Otodom of Tim. And again, he has what I call my humanitarian impulse here. For the Svarna, the Egyptians have a chance to do tshuva. Unfortunately, do not take the chance, and then they get a real punishment. So we have the Otodom of Tim for nine, Shvatim Dolim for ten. I think this is a good summary of everything that's going on here in the Makot.